He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful for our salvation, for all that you have given us and provided for us, But salvation is a rebirth. It is regeneration. We are made alive in Christ. And so it is the beginning of a new life, a new life that has a destiny, a destiny to rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ, a destiny that is unique and distinct for church-age believers, a destiny that is identified in Scripture as an inheritance. And yet often this is a teaching of Scripture that is Uh, not clearly understood, but it is designed to motivate us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, to serve him, and to live today in light of eternity. So, Father, as we continue our study on inheritance and rewards and heirship, we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to this truth, that we might be challenged to live differently today, that we may glorify you greater for all eternity. And we pray this in his, in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles this morning with me to Matthew chapter 5. We will get there, but I want to begin with a little review. We're in Ephesians 1.14, where we're studying about salvation and rewards and airship. We have come to the last verse in the opening Uh, section, the opening blessing statement of the Apostle Paul, where he has talked about how we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in relation to the work of the Father and then the Son, and then in verses 13 and 14, the work of God, the Holy Spirit, where he says that it is the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until that word focuses on something future. We have a guarantee now of something we will realize in the future, and that is the redemption of the purchased possession. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own, and we are to serve the Lord to the praise of his his glory. The word for inheritance, as we have studied, is the word kleronomia, indicating a possession or property, an idea that runs all the way through this particular blessing from verse 3 down to this particular point, and that we have been redeemed to be a possession of God's. And the mark of that possession is the sealing by the Holy Spirit, which identifies us as owned by God, owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is a purchase. That inheritance is related to something that is guaranteed to us. And so it is secure. It is not, in this verse, the inheritance is not dependent upon anything that we do. It is dependent upon what God does. And as we continue our study of inheritance, I want you to think about the fact that there are these two emphases in inheritance passages. One is that which God secures for us, and the other is that which is conditioned in relation to our behavior. And those are related to two different aspects or categories of our inheritance. But here we have the emphasis on what God has given us in that inheritance. This is an echo of what we also have in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Again, a blessing statement by Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the focus, the subject, the grammatical subject, as well as the focal point of these two verses is what God has provided for us. He, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again. That's regeneration, which is by faith alone in Christ alone. He has begotten us again to a living hope. Hope always focuses us on the future. Hope is the Greek word elpis, which indicates a confident expectation. It is not the sort of wishful optimism that we might express. We may uh, be watching the weather as we did this last week, and some of us may were, maybe were hoping that we would get some rain off of this storm that would water our yards and water our gardens and things of that nature. And others of us were hoping that we wouldn't get any winds or flooding or destruction or things of that nature. But it was wishful optimism. We had no idea what would happen. And then, but in the Bible, hope is not wishful optimism. It is a confident certainty. It is something that we know because of the certainty of faith. And so we have been born again to a living hope, not a dead hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, that is the end game, the purpose of our salvation. So often people just think, well, I'm glad to be saved because I'll end up in heaven and not down in the lake of fire. But there is a lot more to it than that. We are not just saved so we can spend eternity with God in heaven. We are saved for a purpose that impacts us not only here and now in our life on this earth, but to impact us in eternity. God has a plan and purpose for us in the, in the millennial kingdom and on into the eternal state as members of the body of Christ, the church, and in terms of serving and ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have a guaranteed inheritance, something that cannot be lost. It is incorruptible and undefiled, and it does not fade away, and it is reserved in heaven for us. This is the same kind of guaranteed inheritance that we have in Ephesians 1, 1.14. And yet we have passages such as Colossians 3.24 that talk about the reward of the inheritance. A reward is something different from a gift. A reward is something that is earned. A gift is something that is free. And so they are not to be confused. 
that salvation, our eternal life, is given to us freely when we trust in Christ as Savior. But we will discover that the passages that talk about the reward of the inheritance, that those are passages that are designed to motivate us to live for him today and not just to sit back and be satisfied with the fact that we will spend eternity in heaven, but to serve him because God has a plan and a purpose for us, and we need to grow and mature spiritually so that we can fully realize that plan and purpose in our life today. We were saved for a purpose, and that is to serve him in this life. But in order to serve him, we have to understand what that means. We have to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to mature in him. It is only then that we truly become usable and serviceable for the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens is that a lot of people just stay in their spiritual diapers. And as you and I both know, if you have a family, if you have children, and most of us were children, that if you just stayed around in diapers and as an infant, you don't really uh, provide a whole lot for the for the family, but as you grow and mature and you go through those adolescent years and you contribute a lot in terms of just taking care of things around the house and fulfilling various chores and things of that nature, and the more you mature, the more useful you are in your service to the family. And that is the idea that we have in these passages. So Colossians 3.24 says, Because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance and then the command to serve the Lord. Now, serving the Lord cannot be a condition for salvation. For we have passages like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3, 5, and a number of other passages that talk about the fact that it is a salvation is a free gift. We are, as Galatians 2, 20 says, we are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. There are no commands related to salvation other than believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But then we have a lot of other commands in Scripture that are not related to getting saved. In other words, that phase one of salvation where we are saved and we are saved from the penalty of sin so that we will spend eternity in the Lord Jesus, spend eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are to serve Him. And that is why I had you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, we have a much misunderstood passage of the Sermon on the Mount. And it is often distorted and used by people, whether they are liberal Christians or whether they are liberal non-Christians. They rip verses out of context in order to justify everything from uh, social justice to uh, guilt manipulation to uh, emphasizing that uh, works or morality as a basis for salvation. The fact is that this is a section, as we studied not long ago in Matthew, this is a section that is addressed to those who are already saved, already justified. It is addressed by Jesus to his disciples, not the disciples in a broad sense, but to the uh, intimate circle of his uh, 12 disciples. The verse 1 says, when he was seated, which is the position that a rabbi would take in order to teach the congregation. That's even true today. Sometimes I think I would like to just sit down. That would be so much easier. But 
So he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now I want to just notice a couple of things here. I'm not going to get into a full exposition of of, uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew because we've already done that. But I just want you to notice a few things. He starts off and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, which is an idiom for humility, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, is Jesus saying you have to have humility in order to get into heaven? Is that a condition? Are these other things that he says in these verses expressing a condition to get into heaven, or is he talking about something different, a greater experience and enjoyment of the future? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is, those who have genuine humility, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what we will see is that this phraseology is related to the uh, enjoyment and ownership in the kingdom. It is not just talking about getting into heaven when we die. It is talking about that quality that we will experience as we serve the Lord in the future kingdom. Notice verse 5, blessed are the meek, another term for related to humility, for they shall inherit the earth. Inherit, as we have seen in the last few weeks, means possession, that the meek here will, uh, will inherit or possess the land, literally. So he's talking to Jews. It is not shifted to the church age yet. And he is talking in reference to their future in the kingdom, which is a messianic kingdom. He never changes its meaning. So he's not talking about uh, the way in which it's usually interpreted with, with liberal Christianity, that everybody has to become this little soft uh, doormat that everybody uh, runs over, and somehow you will uh, eventually uh, be in control. He is talking about... The meek, remember Moses was the meekest man in the Old Testament, and he was a man who was extremely strong, dynamic. He led around three million Jews through the uh, wilderness, through the southern desert in the Negev for uh, 40 years, and he certainly was an extremely strong, dynamic individual. The concept of meekness means someone who is oriented to the authority of God and stays under his authority. Jesus humbled himself by being obedient to the point of the cross. So meekness is related to authority orientation. It is related to submission to God and following God. So that is what Jesus is talking about. We could paraphrase it. Blessed are those who are submitted to the authority of God, for they shall inherit the earth. This is talking about something beyond simple justification, salvation. And so as you read through these Beatitudes here, it is very clear that they're talking about something beyond simply getting to heaven. They are the disciples that he's addressing. That that eternal destiny of heaven is already secure. He is talking to them about something that goes beyond that. And then we come down to Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. And what I want to point out here is that through... Chapter 5 and chapter 6, Jesus is drawing a contrast between that which is spiritually profitable for the believer in Christ, for the uh, person who is born again in terms of their future destiny, 
and he is contrasting that with the superficial, works-oriented uh, uh, behavior of the, of the Pharisees. So we come to verse 10, and we begin to see a contrast that's going to be worked out here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there again we have the repetition of the phrase we saw in verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So somebody might say, well, I thought I had the kingdom of heaven because I trusted in Christ as Savior. Well, you're going to be in heaven, but you may not enjoy all of the privileges and blessings that are going to be there in the future kingdom. Uh, that belongs to those who mature and who are, exhibit different qualities that we see in Matthew 5 through 7. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is going to relate to a passage we looked at last time in Romans chapter 8, which talked about the fact that there is a joint heirship in Christ for those who suffer with him. They are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, when they make fun of you, when they cut you out of certain things. This morning I was reading about a young woman who was a uh, could have easily qualified for the national soccer team, but because three years ago the national soccer team was going to wear rainbow jerseys in order to uh, celebrate LGBTQ uh, movement, and because she was a believer, she she uh, said that she would not participate on the team because she could not wear that jersey. And as a result, she has been shunned, ridiculed, and made fun of by the uh, LGBTQ community and many others. And uh, allegedly, by reputation, she is the best at what she does, the position she plays in soccer. But she was willing to give all that up uh, because she was going to do that which was right according to Scripture. We will be reviled and persecuted in many different ways if we stand up for the Scripture. If you stand up for the Scripture, uh, dealing with certain policies that the, your employer emphasizes, you may say, well, I just can't do that in good consciousness as a believer in Jesus Christ. So you may lose your job. You may have to give up certain benefits. You may have to give up certain careers because of the pressure that is coming from the uh, social justice side of the political spectrum that is has a target on anybody who is an evangelical believer who is l trying to consistently live out what the Scripture teaches in every area of their life, which means the public square. So Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And then he says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Notice the emphasis now is talking about inheritance and it's talking about reward. It is not talking about the free gift of salvation, but that which is given in addition to salvation on the basis of obedient behavior on the part of the believer. A great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we'll skip down a little further in chapter 5 to verse 44. 
And in this section, we're going to see more of the contrast between the behavior of the Pharisees and the behavior that uh, characterizes a growing, maturing disciple of Jesus. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. So this is sort of a summary, and he said a lot since we looked at verses 10 through 12, and he's going back and summarizing this, and he says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So the attitude of the believer under any kind of rejection or any kind of ridicule for their faith in Christ is simply to let Jesus deal with the uh, the deal with the rejection, and we are to treat people in kindness and in goodness, not to have mental attitude sins of resentment or anger or uh, any sort of retaliation or revenge, but simply put it in the Lord's hands, casting every care upon him because he cares for us. And there is a purpose for this, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, that's not talking about getting into heaven in salvation because that would be works. That would be saying that we are saved or justified by the works of the law. It is simply saying that this is something in addition. It is a result of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and as a result of that, there will be other honors and rewards given us, and this has to do with a category identified here as you will be identified as a son son of the Father in heaven. This is a special category of reward. And then uh, Jesus said, For he, that is God the Father, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? See, it's real easy to love people who like us. It is real easy to love people who are popular, people who have good personalities, people who are uh, doing things that benefit us or they give us nice compliments or they go get along with us in many different ways. It's hard to love people who are bitter and angry towards us, who resent us, who always uh, pick on us or try to manufacture things that we have done in order to uh, persecute us simply because they know that we believe the Bible. And let me tell you, I have experienced this in my life as a pastor that because people in the congregation knew that I believed some things that they violently disagreed with, they did everything in their power to manufacture slander uh, against me in order to get me out of the pulpit and fire me from that church. And it was a bitter experience that I had as a young pastor, but one that uh, I value very much in the way that it shaped me spiritually to learn this particular lesson. We have to learn to love those who hate us, and this is very, very difficult. As Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. 
And the tax collectors were the lowest segment in society. Everybody, all the Jews hated them because they viewed them as traitors that they had sold out to the Romans, and they were collecting taxes for the Romans. And the way the system worked is the more you collected above the amount you were to pay the Romans, uh, that just feathered your own nest, and many of them got wealthy, like Levi, who became known as Matthew. Uh, he would have become quite wealthy as a result of, of his use of the taxing system to create his own wealth. So there were very few who loved them, so he's making the point that uh, just as tax collectors love those who love them. And then Jesus goes on and says, verse 47, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? In other words, if you only greet those who agree with you, if you only stay in your little Christian clique and don't get out where you're dealing with people who are unbelievers, who reject what you believe and who despise you because you are a Christian, then that's not too difficult. You just stay in your own little Christian clique and you just know only Christians who agree with you. It says, if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect. What it means by that is mature, not flawless. You shall be perfect. You shall be mature even as your Father in heaven is complete. Perhaps this idea has, when it relates to the Father, has to do with his sufficiency for us that we shall be mature, that is, relying on the sufficiency of God because he is the one who is sufficient for us in every situation. Then the next verse, there's a chapter break there in your Bibles, but it's not there in the original. And so it flows uh, consistently. It says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, this is talking about the practice of the Pharisees to live out their religious practice in the eyes of those around them, the eyes in society, so that they could show everybody how spiritual they were. And then they would be talked about and they would be praised by others. And for them, that was important in terms of their spirituality. And if people praise them, then what Jesus is saying, well, that's all the reward that they're going to get. They're just going to get the reward of, of recognition from people in at this time, but that's that's the limit of it. And they will not have reward from your Father in heaven. Now, the point I want to make here is the contrast here is showing that the reward that the Pharisees get from recognition among the people is a temporal reward that they get right now, and that's all there is. But the reward that comes from the Father in heaven is not a reward experienced now. It's that reward that is experienced in the future, that reward that will be distributed at uh, for us as church-age believers that will be distributed at the judgment seat of Christ. This contrast continues through the first part of Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 2 says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, that is, when you are giving, when you are helping somebody who is in need, uh, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. So what the Pharisees would do is they would put on a show whenever they were giving to help people, and Jesus says at the end, assuredly, I say to you, they have your reward. Their reward is just a, a 
recognition here and now. In contrast, what Jesus says is when you do a charitable deed, that is when you give, uh, no one is to know what's going on. No one is to know how much you give, when you give, how you give, to whom you give, how you help people. That is something between you and the Lord, and we're not doing it for any sort of recognition. God knows what's going on, and God is the one who, the only one uh, for whom that matters, and God is the one who will reward us at the judgment seat of Christ for church-age believers. He says, when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now, that word openly is a word that may not be, if you have a New American Standard, NIV, ESV, or one of those translations, it's not there. It's in the King James and New King James because it's in the majority text. And I believe that the textual uh, evidence that this is part of the Word of God is solid. But the point is that it's still, the openly here isn't today. It is that it will be made manifest at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 and following. In verse 5, Jesus applies this to prayer. He says, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. So they're looking for that uh, adoration from men. They're looking for recognition. They're looking for approbation. And Jesus says, well, they have their reward. It is a reward that is here and now. But he says, in contrast, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Again, this is talking about a future reward that is at the judgment seat of Christ. All of these rewards are based on behavior. They are not based on faith in Christ. Faith in Christ gives you the free gift of salvation, Rewards are in a di- in addition to salvation for our uh, spiritual growth and application of the word. Matthew six sixteen, Jesus says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. They're just showing off how spiritual they are. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. It's temporal. They're getting recognition for others, but that's all there is to it. There's nothing that has any eternal value. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. And that's just simply uh, talking about that's the word anointing there. It's not creo, which is the word from which we get uh, the noun Christos for Christ and anointing. It is just a secular term. It's saying get up in the morning, take a shower, brush your hair, brush your teeth, put on your deodorant, and go about life as if you everything is fine. Don't don't get up and say, well, I'm fasting today. I want everyone to know it, so I'm not going to shave. I'm not going to comb my hair. I'm not going to put on any deodorant. Uh, I'm just going to put on whatever clothes are lying on the floor, and I want everybody to know that I'm suffering for Jesus. Okay, so that's not going to count for anything except maybe some people will cross over to the other side of the street when they see you coming. So the issue is, again, a reward for what you're doing here and now versus 
an eternal consequence to our spiritual growth uh, here and now. So we come to now to verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The temporal rewards can all be taken away. They have no value eternally at all. In contrast, Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's the reward. It's treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is the point. Are we living our life for today or are we living our life for eternity? Do we have a focus on the fact that life is not about what we experience between now and the time we die? It's really nice to have creature comforts and many other things that we can avail ourselves of. It's wonderful to get recognition for different things that we do, but that's not the focal point for us as believers. The only recognition that should count for us is that recognition that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ when after we die physically, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. The problem we face when we are looking at these passages is that there are passages that speak about inheritance as a um, gift, and there are other passages that speak about inheritance as a reward. A gift is something that is free, something that is given to us, something that cannot be taken away from us. It is ours at the point of reception. And then a reward is something that is earned. What happens with a shallow or superficial system of interpretation especially from those who are inclined to look at morality and behavior as the basis for salvation, is that they go to these passages and use them uh, in order to uh, manipulate uh, Christians, religious people, and to force usually a pseudo-morality upon people. What we have in contrast to that is Scripture emphasizing grace, that God gives us salvation. He regenerates us freely. It is not based on works of righteousness, which we have done. It is not based on the works of the law. We are justified apart from the works of the law. But God gives us a system of motivation. You can... um, you can compare it to the kind of thing that happens with modern athletes. When they are hired by a team, they are given a contract, and that contract guarantees them a certain income. But what happens afterwards is that they often have incentive clauses. Sometimes this happens in business as well. They're given incentive clauses that if they perform at a certain level, they will get bonuses. And this is comparison to what we have in in, uh, Scripture is with salvation. We get an ironclad contract that when we die, we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be uh, in heaven and we're going as members of the body of Christ. We're going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity. But there are incentive clauses to motivate us to live for him and not for ourselves so that when we are face-to-face with the Lord, and we're at the judgment seat of Christ, we receive rewards. Now, these rewards are not to be understood as, uh, uh, not to be understood as monetary-type rewards 
are necessarily recognition, but I think they are rewards that relate to to future service, future responsibilities as we will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the future. Because as we grow to maturity in this life serving the Lord, what we are developing in our souls is a capacity for service. What we are developing in our souls is a capacity for an intimate relationship with the Lord. And the only thing that we take with us when we die and we're face-to-face with the Lord is those capacities, that spiritual maturity. And just because you are a believer doesn't mean that when you die, you're going to go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity as a result of your transition to heaven. When you hit heaven, you're probably going to be as spiritually immature at that point or spiritually mature as you were when you died. The only thing you take with us are those capacities that are developed in this life and that are preparing us for that future life of serving with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Now, when you hear that, you may say, oh, my, I'm never going to make it. I've had so many failures. And we're all that way because we're sinners and we're corrupt. But remember, the God that is going to be in charge of of rewarding us is very gracious and very loving. If you go back into the Old Testament and you read in the book of Judges about the lives of uh, Barak, Deborah and Barak in chapters 4 and 5. You read about Gideon in chapter 6, and you go on and you read about Jephthah and his sacrificing his daughter as a burnt offering to God, which means he literally physically immolated her to God as the pagans did and as many others didn't because he, he was not that spiritually mature. And you get to Samson, and he never did anything good according to the writer of the book of Judges. And then you go fast forward to Hebrews chapter 11, and you get down to the latter part of Hebrews chapter 11, and all of these men who were spiritual failures on the surface, according to, uh, according to the book of Judges, are, are rewarded. They are rewarded by having their names mentioned by God as heroes of the faith because at some critical points in their life, they trusted God. They might have blown it many, many other times, but at critical times they trusted God and they were deliverers of God's people from the uh, oppression and the military defeat of foreigners. And that tells us that if God is so gracious that he's going to Uh, honor uh, the spiritual impact of Samson, which wasn't a whole lot, then maybe it won't be so bad at the judgment seat of Christ, that God is going to judge us on the basis of grace as well as understanding that we are people of flesh, that we are people of of, um, of immorality often because we are sinners and that God is going to deal with us. But we have to recognize these warnings that we have in Scripture that we see in passages such as 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that those who are unrighteous, those who practice certain behavior, risk their inheritance in the kingdom, not being in heaven, but they risk that inheritance. Ephesians 5, 5 says the same thing, that if you're an immoral or impure person, or a covetous man who is an idolater, then you won't have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
The same thing, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This sets up the importance of this study over rewards and inheritance. And so next time we will go forward with this as we talk about inheritance as a possession, and then we'll come back eventually and deal with those difficult passages in 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, and Galatians 5. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be reminded that you have a plan and a purpose for us. And that isn't simply that we will go to heaven when we die physically, but that we will be prepared for a future life of service to you, ruling and reigning with our Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom, and on into the future in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, as it were, we are in boot camp right now in training, and how well we do through this time of of training and discipline will give us options for our future service with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom and in eternity. Father, we pray that if anyone is listening, that they would realize that that service is not a condition for salvation, that there's no condition for salvation other than simply trust in Jesus Christ. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. The Scripture doesn't say believe and be humble, believe and be obedient, uh, believe and repent. It never says any of these things. It simply says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life, but the wrath of God abides on him forever. Father, we are thankful that we have a salvation that is not dependent upon anything other than uh, who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. But when we get a new life, then we are uh, given incentives to live out that life, to grow, to mature, and that's the challenge for each of us as believers in Christ. And so we pray for those who have never trusted in Christ that they would come to understand clearly the gospel as a free gift. And for those of us who are saved, that we would be challenged and motivated uh, to go forward in our spiritual life and spiritual growth, that we can glorify you both now and in eternity. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.